How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. I'm Greg Dalton, host of the Climate One radio and TV show at the Commonwealth Club. We're here with Michael Schellenberger and Severin Borenstein from Berkeley. Uh, Michael from the Breakthrough Institute. We're talking about Pandora's promise. And uh, Michael Schellenberger, let's begin with you. Tell us how you got involved in this, how this story, uh, this film got made. Um, well, it's just like Robert says in the movie, or I, I don't know if he does say in the movie. <laughs> um, it, it, he, he changed his mind about this over a period of years. That starts with, he made a movie called Earth Days with Stuart Brand. And um, in it, uh, well, the story says they went to Sundance with it, and uh, the first question was uh, about whether we should, environmental should support nuclear energy. And, and Stewart said yes. Um, and um, somehow it came up where Robert just was like, is that something that people in the audience are interested in? <laughs> and everyone was like, raised, raised their hand. They were like, we want to see, we want to see what that's about. And I think he uh, wanted to tell his own story of kind of his own conversion story through different folks. And so he, he wanted to find people of different, you know, ages and, and, and obviously nationalities um, to just kind of describe their, why they changed their mind. And in the film, you tell about your own conversion. Were you converted before you got involved with the film or do they yes. come? To, okay. So you had your own conversion before you got involved in the film. Yeah. And so, I mean, it was slow, right? So, um, you know, um, we realized when we started looking at the energy data in 2006, you know, to even to, I mean, really earlier in the early 2000s, we co-founded a big push on renewables called the Apollo Alliance. And the idea was the world's going to use a lot of energy. So we knew that the world would need a lot of energy, but it was like nuclear was something, it wasn't like we were actively rejecting it. It just was sort of off of the table. Um, it was sort of out of, it's sort of that magician's thing. You know, it's just out of attention. You know, you're, it's attention blindness, sort of. And um, and then it was just, you know, we, we succeeded in getting a bunch of money spent on, you know, with a bunch of other people on renewables with Obama. And I think that experience led us to say, boy, it just it's not going to just be solar and wind and efficiency that's going to power a world of 9 billion people that consumes two to three times as much energy as it consumes today. And that was that and then satisfying all of the kind of concerns, I mean, not satisfying, kind of under, re-understanding the concerns around safety and waste and proliferation combined with the really the energy challenge was what motivated us to come out as pro-nuclear in about 2010, um, just a few weeks before Fukushima, really, um, <laughs> which Good was then an immediate, uh, as they say in, the, in, in, in religious studies, so a test of faith, as you might imagine. And what do you hope to accomplish with the film? Well, I mean, I, th I think that what's, it's already done. I mean, I think it's accomplished. It's a, it's a conversation. I mean, I was, I, right before I came here, I was at a friend's uh, 40th birthday party, and um, it's all my lefty, you know, Bay Area liberal environmentalist friends. And one of them who, who really, you know, is still quite anti-nuclear but was really moved by the movie. We were arguing about the movie, and he goes, but I just – Robert says he's trying to start a conversation, but – but but that's not what that movie's about. That movie's you know about selling a particular point of view. And I, and we were arguing about. It and I was like, well, we are having the conversation. You know, it's like and the conversation is happening online. And I mean, I think when we get these things get so intense and so controversial as it, I think it has been online for the last five days, 
that you forget. You go, this is amazing. We're actually having a conversation about whether we should use nuclear energy to deal with global warming. And it may be that we just decide not to use it. It may be that humans just go, we're not going to use nuclear. And and I think it's better to have that clarity um, and to understand what the alternatives are if we're not going to do that. Um, so I kind of go, me, for, for me, I just kind of go, I would like to see a future that has a lot more nuclear, a lot more advanced nuclear that's safer and cleaner and cheaper. Um, and it might be that, you know, my fellow humans and Americans don't want to do it. And if that's the case, then we should know that too. Severin Borenstein, uh, you're an energy expert at the Haas School of Business. Uh, did the movie impress you or change you? Or at any point you were kind of like, hmm. It didn't really impress me. It didn't really change me because in a sense – it, the impression it gave me, the realization was that this parallel between the anti-nuke fo- forces and the climate change deniers, uh, which is this refusal to see basic science. Um, with all respect, I was shocked that Michael was so shocked at the Chernobyl statistics. Uh, this is something that people who study this have talked about and articles have been written about and careful scientific studies have been done, and it's pretty known that it had a very limited health impact. Uh, so uh, the debate, and I think the movie is potentially, that's not to take away from the potential impact of the movie. I think it could be very great if it brings a lot of people who particularly are on the left in anti-nuke for very knee-jerk and poorly informed reasons to reconsider that. Uh, just as we would like people who are on the right, who are think that climate change is a hoax, to reconsider that view. And I think there's a real parallel. Um, what the movie doesn't address, except in two extremely vague strokes, is cost. Um, and the fact is that the careful studies of cost show that nuclear is still a whole lot more expensive than natural gas, and a whole lot more expensive than coal, even coal that is done with uh, the environmental controls that you need to burn coal without creating the China type of pollution that we're seeing right now. Coal can be burned with far less, not none, but far less local pollution problems. And my concern is that China is increasingly going that direction. They're recognizing they can't deal with all the air pollution, and they're saying, well, what's the cheapest way to deal with that? The cheapest way is to build coal-fired power plants and scrub the emissions. Uh, and the fact is that nuclear powers, the current designs are still almost certainly out of the money. And I, although I think it definitely should be part of the mix, I hope that we will consider nuclear as as well as solar and wind. Um, I think solar and wind can also play a role. When we try to be a futurist, as Stuart Brand said, which I a term that always makes me nervous, um, I think that one of the things you have to recognize is nuclear power, the cost uh, estimates on nuclear power are above coal and natural gas, but not that far above. But that's where they've been for decades. Uh, the costs on solar are massively lower than they were a couple decades ago. That's not to say it's necessarily going to get cheaper still, but it, they've come way down. Wind has come way down as well. So I think all of these technologies have to be in the mix. If this movie moves us forward in saying, yes, nuclear also has to be in the mix, I think that's a good thing. I hope people won't walk away and say, oh, the problem's solved. Um, nuclear power just is an easy solution. Because the fact is it still almost certainly would cost twice as much as current 
generation technologies, and so, we let, need to deal with that. Let's get Michael in this. Uh, Michael, a lot of your work is based on economics, and this is a film that's light on economics. So how about right. the cost of nuclear compared to other sources of energy? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's uh, – I totally – I mean, I basically agree with everything Severin said. Um, uh, I th our view has always been that if the world is going to deal with climate change, then you have to make uh, low and zero carbon energy technologies a lot cheaper. Now, the amazing thing is that is what's happened with natural gas, and it took a long time. And a lot of work by both very good private sector entrepreneurs and government investment, including subsidies, um, uh, $10 billion worth of subsidies, uh, for deploying uh, these new technologies to get gas. Um, and so now gas is cheaper than coal, which is a turnaround. I mean, five years ago, uh, people would, would pat, pat us on the head and they'd laugh and they'd say, they'd say, your idea of making anything cheaper than coal is a joke. Don't you understand? Nothing will ever be cheaper than coal. Well, gas is cheaper than coal now. Um, or has been. It's now at, at probably at parity. Um, uh, and I think there's a lesson there, which is that, you know, we've had a couple of hundred years now of energy transitions. You know, we moved away from whale oil for lighting in the 19th century, for example, not because Greenpeace in the 1860s was really effective, <laughs> um, but because actually there was a whole effort underway, private sector and public sector aggressively, to, to provide alternative uh, fuels, really is camphene and kerosene, um, and then of, of course eventually electricity. And so I think the model here is we're going to have a lot, we're going to do a lot of gas in the United States, and, and I hope we do a lot to replace coal. Um, I'm sorry to see us replacing nuclear with gas, however, um, which is what we're doing at San Onofre, um, because I generally go you want to move to less carbon intensive kinds of energy gradually over time. And that's what we've done, and I think we should continue to do that. And that should so we should continue. We should go through. We should go from coal to gas. I don't think you should go from nuclear or renewables back to gas. Um, uh, but I think we need to obviously take. And this is, there's a longer white paper we have coming out in a couple of weeks that argues you have to make next generation nuclear technologies safer, uh, more manufactured than constructed, um, connected, sort of ready and connected to existing supply chains. Um, and also efficient in order to become cheap. Because nuclear, next generation nuclear has got to be cheap. It's got to become cheaper, at least in 20 or 30 years, so that it can replace gas that I think will, might, might actually be more expensive than too. But right now, I'd like to read a quote from uh, John Rowe, who's a recently retired CEO of Exelon, which is the l largest operator of nuclear power plants in the country. He told Forbes last year that I've never met a nuclear plant that I didn't like, seen one that yeah, I didn't like. Sure. But they don't make sense now. So right. The economics just don't make sense now. And nuclear has been promising for a long time. We're going to get safer and cheaper. Hasn't right. really happened. Maybe it's happened. Maybe it hasn't. But yeah. the economics, it's with natural gas so cheap. I mean, it's cutting everything. Well, right? you see it in the movie, though. I mean, in, two, in, in the early 90s, um, I'm a liberal Democrat, like like Dick Rhodes is, and you know, talks on the movie. But in the early 90s, liberal Democrats cut the advanced nuclear research program. And, and I know on good authority that when DOE has tried to do its job and demonstrate advanced generation nuclear technologies, which it is, is a mandate to do, it is supposed to do that. That's its trust with the public. NRC's job is to regulate. DOE's job is to advance the technology. Anytime somebody at DOE wants to do that, they get phone calls from the Hill saying budgets are going to get cut, heads are going to get cut off. And so we have... We've seeded it to the point now where when the Chinese go to Oak Ridge, which is one of our top labs for nuclear, 
they just give the Chinese. They, I mean, and I, and I'm, I'm happy that they did because we're not going to use that inf- that intelligence, that knowledge. But they just gave the Chinese everything. The Chinese are now moving forward on two. I think they hacked in and had it already. But somebody, um, but we, and, and that's what Nathan Mervold, who was a top Microsoft, uh, I don't know if he was a co-founder, but an executive, um, and is starting a new nuclear company, went to DOE and was like, "Look, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. I, we start companies. I want to do this. It's you know, he's motivated by global warming." And DOE was like, "Go to China and do it, because we don't do that in the United States." And I think that's a travesty, actually, as somebody that cares a lot about solar and wind and all green energy technologies. And I look at San Onofre and I go, that looks like a great place to do a new demonstration because, because it's already set up, it's already licensed for it, um, and, and that's the place that ought to have it. Um, and if we're not going to have it, then I would like to at least have the conversation about and the recognition that it means we're going to burn a lot more fossil fuels. So that means that we may need to start taking adaptation seriously, but at the very least, I don't think you can be a Southern California anti-nuclear activist and an anti-fracking activist. Well, there's some very specific things with San Onofre, which is a plant in Southern California closed, seismic, technology, age. It wasn't closed because of the reasons in the film, particularly. Well, it was closed because they have had some real production problems where they have done some maintenance, and it turned out that the maintenance wasn't done well. This is one of the problems that we've run into with nuclear power many times, which is the old designs, and I think actually the, in some ways the movie focuses too much on the old designs, though I understand reassuring people about those is part of the goal. The old designs were very complex machines with a lot of stuff going on and therefore a lot of stuff that could go wrong. And the goal of the next generation and it isn't just a goal at this point, is to build much simpler technologies that are much more fail-safe. And there are four under construction in the United States, South Carolina and Georgia, and they, recently they, uh, one of them, with, uh, operated by a southern company, announced $800 million in cost overruns. We've seen this movie before. Right. And these are new, this is what, it's this third generation, and they're still having $6 billion a pop. But let's be clear where we're, we have to get. Uh, we have to get not only the United States but the rest of the world to move off of fossil fuels or at least move off of carbon emissions. And I want to say that because one of the potential solutions is carbon capture and sequestration. And I think that also has to be in the mix. That's also because there's a lot of coal in the world, and if we could really figure out how to capture the emissions, that would be a technology that would work. I think we have to be doing all of these things. So the fact that that technology is – that that plant is over budget, I don't think should be used to kill off, to say, well, this will never work. I agree with Michael. What we need to be doing is investing, making real investments in pilot plants of all of these technologies to learn more, including all of the new nuclear technologies, including new solar technologies. We have to be willing to lose a lot of money because the goal, if we're serious, has to be not just that we're willing to pay a little extra for it, because even if we are, the developing world probably isn't going to be. So we need to actually get to a point where there is a technology that the developing world is willing to adopt because it's as cheap or almost as cheap as burning coal. And we're not even close to that on nukes, and we're not even close to that on solar and wind at this point. And we need to get there. The guys at Google said that really well. It needs to be RE less than C. Uh, let's include uh, you. We have 10 minutes le- left. So. I have to point out, though, they then abandoned that project. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, and they, so that's uh, – yeah. 
Let's have uh, your audience questions. Uh, we have a microphone. If you'd like to uh, uh, join us, we can't see, but someone with a microphone. Okay. Yes. Welcome. France seems to be the leading uh, country in the in the world, actually, that's adopting nuclear uh, power. What is it that they're doing that seems to be right, and everybody else is doing that seems to be wrong? Part of our problem seems to be relying on politicians to make these kind of decisions, which is a, a recipe for failure. France has basically three types of nuclear reactors, from what I understand, uh, three generations of them, and they're very uniform across their spectrum. When they find a problem in one of them, they fix it in all of that generation. The United States... Uh, thank you, Bechtel. Uh, and I didn't notice Bechtel as a contributor to any of this film. No, there's, uh, no, there's no industry funding of any of this. Yeah. But, well, you wouldn't find it from Bechtel anyway. But Bechtel has made every nuclear reactor in the U.S. unique. And there, you find a problem in one, right. and it does not apply to any of the others. Thank you. So let's get, why aren't we more like the French? Well, it's a wonderful boy uh, that, that you can. There's there's long books written about it. Um, starts with culture. Uh, there's a wonderful book called The Radiance of France, which is about the French had a really different view of everything about nuclear. The radiation was not this dread, scary thing. It was something really lovely. I mean, even with Marie Curie dying of it, um, uh, they had a sense of after World War II that they didn't want to be victimized ever again. And so they the atom splitting the atom helped them to prevent ever being victimized again. And then after the OPEC oil embargoes in the early 70s, France said they were burning oil for electricity, which is a really inefficient way to get electricity, and they, and they, and they didn't want to be reliant on the Middle East, and so they, uh, they just scaled up nuclear. Now, it's a very interesting country. It's, it's a semi-socialist government. It has a strong state. So some of what you said I think is really correct. Um, they do trust their technocrats a lot more there. Um, I mean, it would be like DOE, like when you hear people talk about the DOE in the United States, it's always like, oh, oh DOE is terrible, you know, oh, it's terrible and whatever. In France, it's like, you know, it's the, you know, it's the engineers, you know, it's the tech, it's the technical guys. Some of that's very cultural and very different about the United States. Um, I think the frontier of the new technologies are actually in China. The most recent French designs have been expensive. They have, um, standardization has shown, uh, uh, cost reductions in terms of within the, the types of the polyer, which are those the phases, but generally the the cost of the plants has gotten more expensive in France, and it's mostly related to trying to make the plants too big. Um, our view is that you have to get to a totally different coolant system. We would we are favor we kind of favor more of these molten salt, or in the movie they talk about a, so, a metal you know liquid metal sodium coolants, um, because we think that greatly reduces the safety risks and reduces the need for the expensive redundant safety systems. Um, so in terms of looking forward, uh, we kind of go, DOE should be much more active in this. They should be working. They are. I mean, happily, one of the stories that I think didn't get told in the movie but is quite inspiring is that you have new leadership at both Berkeley and MIT by just incredible men, um, incredible department chairs who are working really closely with the Chinese, and the Chinese are putting a lot of people behind it, and they're pursuing um, at least two advanced designs that we know of, um, a, a gas-cooled reactor and a molten salt cooled reactor, which could then be a fast reactor that burns the waste. So we go, the action's actually all going to move to China, um, just as it has on everything. Um, and 
you know, I think it's one of these things where you kind of go, it may be that that in the 90s we would be like, we will benevolently give the poor countries our solar panels and wind turbines. And now it looks a lot more like China is going to develop the solar panels, the wind turbines, and the advanced nuclear reactors, and we should be so lucky as to be able to import them 20 years from now at a more cost-effective basis. Michael Schellenberger is president of the Breakthrough Institute. We're talking about the film Pandora's Promise. We have time for one, maybe two more questions right my, here. If I can just say one oh, thing sure, before we move off of that, which is uh, I'm not sure where Michael's numbers come from, but we've done a lot of work trying to find French numbers on costs. And at best, they're very approximate. The French government subsidies to nuclear power are very intertwined in the entire industry. And so trying to back out exactly what it costs is tough. But I think it is pretty clear that the French really paid a price for this. They they were willing to do it, but nuclear power was expensive for them. And while it did get them off of oil, and they were resource poor and had to do it, just as the Japanese, um, they, it's not that this is an amazingly cheap energy source for them. So there's a price to independence. Severin Borenstein is co-director of the Energy Institute at the Hoff School of Business at UC Berkeley. It's about the, um, the, the first breeder reactor. And when is that expected to go online and where? And if we don't know, what are your uh, suspicions and projections? Forty years ago. Um, the breeder reactor has been around since the 70s, actually since the 60s. Um, and when I started studying energy in the 70s, uh, breeder reactors were the technology that was just about to make nuclear even cheaper. Um, and a lot of the pushback is political and is worried about um, weapons proliferation. It produces a much more highly radioactive waste stream, a very small one, but highly radioactive. And so the U.S. government and a number of other governments made decisions to move away from it. France didn't. Michael, quickly, then we'll wrap it up. Uh, there's a new generation uh, mentioned in the film of sort of these small modular Bill Gates in the ground, the sort of the things that, that produces less waste. Is that more promising, Severin? I, I'm, I'm an economist, not a technologist, so I can't really say. I, I, it's very exciting from the scientists I've spoken to, but it is very early. It definitely should be in the mix and something that we are doing pilot projects on to see if it can be made cost effective, but we're just starting down that road, really. Michael, is that part of this film? I mean, uh, some of the Microsoft people who are involved in Terra Power uh, were behind this film. Is that part of the laying the pathway for those kinds of new reactors, the film? I, do, I think so. I mean, and I think, you know, just sort of the more time I've looked at it, they also have these two new plants in Georgia, and everyone goes, well, they're really, there's cost overruns, and there's cost overruns in Finland. But when those two reactors come online in, um, in Georgia, they're going to produce as much electricity over their lifetime as the entire German solar program at a cost of about a third or maybe a fourth less. Um, so you have to put these things in perspective. When you get, What you do with nuclear is you get they, – they did a really good analysis that was just done of what can be done in, in about 11 years. And the Swedish nuclear program, after 11 years, produces seven times more energy than the German solar program that they've had. So if you're really concerned about climate and you want to reduce emissions, I think we have – I think these plants in Georgia, which have a three days' worth of coolant – above ground so that if they don't have they have a power outage they can stay cool for three days which is a fair amount of time to get water there um my view is my general view and this is um something that several and i argue privately about but i just go when you look at climate change there's it's not like everything is causing emissions 
The energy sector is the most important thing. There's agriculture too, but you focus on the energy sector because if you can decarbonize it, if you can produce your power from sources that have very low environmental impacts and very low carbon dioxide, um, that's that's something we can do right now, right away, while also, I think, developing the advanced reactors. That the climate imperative is so strong. We have to make this work. We have to make carbon sequestration work. Lots of complicated, expensive things. We've got to make it work because we're facing the climate And we have to make it something that the developing world will adopt because if we just do it in the United States at, at a high cost, um, which is the German strategy, uh, then it, nobody else is going to pick it up. Right, and a lot of the international negotiations which play a part in the film are based on some technology and uh, financial transfers to developing countries to help them do the kinds of things they can't afford to do. Uh, we have to end it there. Our thanks to Michael Schellenberger, president of the Breakthrough Institute, and Severin Bornstein, co-director of the Energy Institute at the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. Thank you all for joining us tonight. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.